Take it easy, take it easy. Hold it gently, she damn near fly herself. Just like driving a car. Where do I pull off the road? <laughs> no, you're doing fine. I'll keep you out of trouble. Relax. Where are we going? One time, I was flying supplies up the Amazon when I came down in the jungle. I was picked up you? by this tribe of headhunters, and they took me to see their chief. You are impossible. He took a long look at me, then took me in his hut. Inside his hut. Welcome to part two of our Jaws to Revenge episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on their exclusive patron channel. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Alex, this is August now. And we start with a new bonus episode available to anybody on any tier of our patron channel. So... If you're starting on the ground floor, the $1 tier, the Travoltis, you have access to all our bonus episodes. This month, the bonus episode is picked by the patron who also picked this movie, Jaws Revenge. Ben Murray is making us watch and review Paper Moon, a Peter Bogdanovich film that uh, I'm not familiar with. You've heard of Paper Moon, I guess, Alex? You're not familiar with it, like at all? I, I mean, I know of the title, but that's it. I couldn't tell you what it's about uh, or who's in it oh interesting yeah i've always thought of it as like a, a big blind spot for me that really needed to be rectified uh tatum o'neill are you familiar with tatum o'neill is she related to ryan o'neill yes it was uh his daughter okay well i know him yeah tatum o'neill won uh, best supporting actress for this and it's relevant for something else we're going to talk about here in just a second and uh yeah it's just you know one of one of those highly praised movies of yesteryear that I've just, for whatever reason, never seen. So, fired up for it. Sign me up for any Oscar winners. I, I'm slowly checking those boxes. So, Paper Moon, that's our bonus episode for this month. Along with, of course, the recently completed Lohan miniseries. It's there. The whole package is now available. Parts all one there. through four. Yeah. It start uh, with uh, Freaky Friday, which I saw online that it's celebrating some sort of anniversary this this year. 20th. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody. There was some website have put up a hor- uh, an oral history of Freaky Friday. So you can start there. Take it all the way to Falling for Christmas. Christmas in July. The entire Lohan journey is there on our Patreon channel for as little as a dollar. And you'll also have access to our cutting room floor segments, which is where anything that didn't make it into the episodes that we deem interesting uh, gets archived, and it's only available to patrons. Now, if you want more, you can increase your contribution, move up a tier to the Winonis, or even further up, and you'll have access to our pre-recording notes, uh, you'll have access to our quick video reviews. Alex, we still need to record the Martin Dual QVR but now we also have another QVR request. This one's from Jamie Russell, who wants us to do the movie Bones and All. You're familiar with Timothy Chalamet, right? Uh, yeah, he's uh, like a Marvel person, right? No, he's not. Surprisingly, uh, he hasn't been snatched by the MCU yet. Uh, so, he is in, uh, what's the biggest thing? Dune? He's in Dune? Oh, he was uh, in that Call Me By Your Name movie. Yes, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Bones and All is from the same Call Me By Your Name director. So 
I don't know much about it. I just know it's it's pretty recent. It came out last year, I think. And uh, romantic it, horror directed by Luca Guard Guadachino. Guard, okay, <laughs> I was gonna, I was going to pronounce it way worse than that. I was going Guadagnio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's that's good, Alex. Because I I liked Call Me by Your Name enough that I would want to watch whatever the guy did next. And then what he did next was the Suspiria remake, and I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. <laughs> so now. Uh, now we can do this, and, and uh, maybe he'll get back on my good graces. So that's a quick video review uh, coming down the line. And then, of course, we have Contrarians After Hours. That's the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we're thinking, that we're watching, that we're listening to. Alex, this time uh, we're doing another uh, very special After Hours. Uh, this This was your idea, so... Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. Yeah, the very sad uh, passing of William Friedkin, who, to me, hell of a filmmaker. And I think everyone's going to say it's too obvious and too on the nose to talk about The Exorcist, because, you know, that's uh, my buddy Justin on Twitter was talking about how he doesn't like that his whole legacy is attached to that. And I agree with that. I mean, there are French connections there. Uh, Sorcerer, um, I fucking love Killer Joe. And so there's a lot of um, to live and die in L.A. I'm just rattling these off off the top of my head. Listen, the Contreras Array did the Fritkin B-side. We did Jade, what, last year? <laughs> yeah, I was trying to save that because that was uh, the one Friedkin that we've covered. We've talked about Bug before, I think, in one of mm-hmm. the After Hours segments, too. Whatever the case, yeah, Julio's never seen The Exorcist, so we're going to do The Exorcist. And that fits in line also with uh, Paper Moon because Tatum O'Neill was 10. Nominated for uh, and won Best Supporting Actress and one of her rivals or um, challengers, I guess you would say. Alongside her was Linda Blair, who would have been twelve or thirteen, nominated for the role of Reagan in The Exorcist. Oh, I'm I'm curious if that's the only time two kids have been nominated in the same category. There's been so many Oscars, it's probably not, but an interesting uh, note. I like it. I like it. Everything is connected. Uh, all right, bring it on. I've been meaning to watch The Exorcist. Almost for as long as we've been doing this podcast, because every time it comes up, I'm just shamed for not having seen it. As you should be. We will need to coordinate on uh, which version we watch and where we can find it, because there is a couple different versions. And they don't make too much of a difference, but there's a story behind that. Okay, I'm going to let you guide me. So you just tell me where I go and, and I'll watch it. If we have the time also, I'm going to have you watch the cursed films on this. And oh, okay. It tells an interesting story. But to you aficionados and purists of William Friedkin who think The Exorcist is a bit too obvious, I agree with you, but it's necessary here uh, to cover some, some ground for the contrarians. And we will, of course, we'll talk about some of the amazing contributions he's had to uh, just memes, I guess you would say <laughs> just ripping Nicholas Wendig Rafen right to his face or that interview. You ever seen that interview where he says, what the fuck does he know about uh, Oliver Stone? And he, <laughs> you know what? Fuck him and Alexander. <laughs> I remember that's like <laughs> one of the closing quotes. <laughs> 
I love it. All right. William Friedkin, the, the subject of our after hours. I can't wait. So if any of that sounds interesting, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. That's where you can look at our tiers and decide if you would like to join the Contrarian Supplements. $1, $3, $5, and $10 are respective tiers. Head on over to patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Take a look around, see which tier you'd like to join. It's all there, man. Go all the way back to our first episode on there, which was us talking about Blue is Warmest Color. We got the Lohan miniseries. We got the Rock Cena mega series that we did. It's it's all there for you to just drop a buck in and take a look around. To all of our current patrons, God bless you all. We love you dearly. And as I like to say, they're taking applications and they will promptly be reviewed and approved. So what are you waiting for? Hit pause on this. Head on over there. Do it. Come back to us then. Wait, you don't even need to. That's not how it works anymore. You can just, <laughs> you know, minimize the podcast uh, app on your phone. Go into Safari or Chrome, whatever you use. Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. Just a few clicks away. Happiness is just a dollar away. What does Homer say? Is happy, dude. That's what we need to start doing. I, I'm going to find the direct dialogue from that. Homer <laughs> invents the telus. <laughs> The telemarketing system of happy dude and ask for a dollar. Happiness is just a debuck away or whatever. All right. I'm rambling. Let's get to the the lecture at hand here. The the meat and potatoes of this, Julio. Let's get back to the water. Get to the point, man. As my wife now says. All right, Julio. Jaws 2 was contemporaneously the highest grossing sequel in history. It was eventually dethroned by Rocky II. But Jaws 2 made over $200 million. And I, I have no idea what the highest grossing sequel today would be. Endgame? Yeah, it would have to be some bullshit. Well, actually, uh, technically, Avatar is a sequel. So, the, you know, the way of water. So you're right. Some CGI bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Uh, the tagline of Jaws 2, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water. I mean, that is fucking legendary. That is an all-timer. <laughs> What's the tagline for the original Jaws? It's not personal. My name is Steven Spielberg, and I make movies. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. Looks like the tagline for the original Jaws was, the most terrifying motion picture from the terrifying number one bestseller. <laughs> Didn't even acknowledge this Steven Spielberg kid. And that movie has not being hyperbolic, like one of the top five movie posters of all time. It made nearly $500 million on a $9 million budget. Jaws 3D in 1983. Starring everyone's favorite loose cannon, Dennis Quaid. Potential Trump supporter, Dennis Quaid. <laughs> 88 million on an $18 million budget. And our topic du jour, Jaws the Revenge. It was the most expensive Jaws movie made at uh, between 23 and $30 million with a $50 million box office return. And very unkind words from critics. It's not a good movie. Is that so? <laughs> or could it be that the Jaws name, like being part of the Jaws franchise, is really what makes people turn on this movie? Like if this was released as just 
random shark movie, then people would be like, oh, okay. But because it's Jaws, then people need to come out with the pitchforks and the torches and be like, oh, no, fuck you, 0%. There's, I think, you make a good point. I think there's, uh, could lend argument to both sides of that. You're also much better than I am about starting off real talk, kind of like still in contrarian mode. So I don't really know <laughs> <laughs> what your what, what your intention behind words are. So before we get to it, you know, zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes, fifteen percent audience score. It just it wasn't in the cards for this one. So you had to dive into the recesses of Letterbox to find some positivity. Do you find any five star reviews? Oh no, dude! Like the the graph on the on the page, like it all ends after three stars. I think like, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty sad to see. Which again, not to not to this has nothing to do with how I feel about the movie, but I think that it's a phenomenon, right? I, sometimes people just decide that a movie is not going to happen, and that's it. So even the positive uh, reviews about Jaws of Revenge, they're like, oh yeah, it sucks, but I like it. It, because that's just how it is. Like I, I don't know anybody, and, and I, you know, just on my superficial overview, like I didn't see anybody that was like, "This is a good movie. This is a great movie. I'm gonna come out and fight for it." It's more like, "Oh, it's okay." It's not us with uh, "Take Me Home Tonight." No, no, cowards, <laughs> all of you. <laughs> all right, I have uh, three. R- real quick before you get into that, we've already joked about this, but the tagline of this this time it's personal. This was the first movie to have that tagline. And for my, <laughs> you know, 90s kid brain, I just thought that tagline always existed since the beginning of time. I didn't realize this was the movie <laughs> that introduced this time. It's personal. This zombie Jason. Like how many more things have been ripped off uh, Jaws Revenge and then made part of pop culture without giving it its due? The the Dark Knight speeches about the the ruby the size of a tangerine. Yep. I mean everything. <laughs> Michael Caine being the highlight of a movie. All right, I'm gonna start with Ian West, who gives Jaws: Revenge three and a half stars, and rewatched it on July fifth, twenty twenty. Everyone knows or has something to say about this movie. For me, the word fascinating comes to mind. That opening scene is a legit banger. An emotional gut punch, and if I'm being perfectly honest, the only scene out of all four of these movies that gave me extreme nightmares as a child. If you've seen this movie as a child, Alex, do you think that maybe it would have shaken you a little more? It's possible. And one I always think about, I think it's called Little Monsters with Fred Savage from 1989. That's Mm -hmm. a movie that... um, one of my first memories was that and it like terrified me just because the way like the characters in it looked so and that's a kid's movie for Christ's sake so I imagine that seeing something like this as a kid definitely could fuck me up there uh Jason lives the the beginning scene of that fucked me up I think I've told this story in here before but I had this wrestling tape and it was whether it was my uncle or my cousin or my dad whoever like taped it for me and gave it to me after the show was over the beginning of Jason lives you know the movie started and it eventually cut off because the tape ran out of space but that opening scene I remember watching that for the first time and just being fucking terrified because Jason you know wakes up out of the grave and he rips a dude's heart out and um <laughs> I forget how he is. That's how he kills Tommy, but I can't remember off the top of my head. So that and then and he the, gets on the phone and he says, 
I'm going to kill John Lennon. <laughs> my uh, my number one traumatized me as a kid because it's one of the earliest memories I have. The first time I remember being scared by something, I have a very like brief flash of the Crypt Keeper, uh, mm-hmm. like sitting on my dad's lap or something that scared me. But my first like truly traumatized by something was T2 when Arnold cuts the skin off his arm and rips it off to reveal. I remember (laughs) that is one of my first vivid memories in life. I ran and hid behind the couch. Like, you know, it's the TV. What the fuck is it going to do to you? But I remember as a little kid, I was so scared that that's what my brain told me to do Was I ran and hid behind the couch and like did the thing, you know, like I was Laurie Strode where I peeked over to see if, you know, the, the bad stuff was gone. So, so Ian West, the reviewer, I can understand what you're saying. And yes, if I saw this at a certain age, it definitely. Oh, man, I wouldn't have gone to the beach. I would have been like, fuck that <laughs> shit, dude. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to follow up with uh, Tony the Terror 666, uh, who might be the only person in Letterboxd that gave Jaws Revenge four stars. And says he rewatched it August 12th, 2020. All these are pandemic rewatches, Alex. COVID 19 <laughs> put everybody in the mood to just see sharks fucking up people. He says, absolutely not the worst movie ever, not even the worst movie in the franchise. Yes, it's bad, but damn, is it fun? And if you don't have fun watching this, I'm worried about you. DM me. We need to talk. <laughs> is this you get a DM, Tony? <laughs> uh, no, but. Uh... This is definitely, if anyone would consider this in like the discussion for worst movies ever, I would just based off the movies you and I have covered on this podcast, there's several more that I would say are worse. I don't, I I didn't get that vibe at all. Did you get this vibe? It's like one of the worst movies ever. While watching it? No. Yeah. 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 No. While hearing the, the, the discourse online then yes, like people always bring this up as as one of the worst movies ever. And I, I guess I'm old enough and I've been around film Twitter enough to know that that doesn't mean anything. So I, I'm i not going to say I went into this movie expecting something good, but I also was not expecting the worst of the worst. I was just like, all right, let's, let's watch the third sequel to Jaws. I mean, yeah. the, the bar is low. And it's also, I think, highlights... That's the other two zero percenters that we've covered on this show. Like it highlights the limitations of the Rotten Tomatoes scoring system, right? It gets a zero percent, even if you allow. Okay, let's say that those forty-one reviews are there on the website still. That's only forty-one people that decided they were not recommending it. But now it's just something else that they can put up there. It's like, hey, it's a zero percenter. See, it sucks. <laughs> um, final quote from Letterbox from Helen S. Gave it two and a half stars and rewatched it on July 17th, 2017. Says, so call me crazy, but this is now my favorite of the sequels. I know with this rating, that's not really saying much. Like, first off, it looks just friggin' stunning. Gorgeous. And the shark looks a ton better than part three. Yeah, the plot is ludicrous and yada, yada, yada. But I just love how it's all about the Brody family again and how sad and sentimental it is, especially in the first half. The final 20 minutes or so is just a big old bundle of fun, especially with my favorite bit. Oh, bloody hell. The breath on that thing. Tee hee. I love Michael Caine, just not giving a fuck at all, just having a great time with it. So I think Helen met the movie where the movie was. 
that's the perfect use of yada 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 where it's nonsensical yeah it doesn't make sense and it sucks but anyway i have an irresistible urge to kiss you ellen brody Whilst on the subject of Michael Caine, this is one of Michael Caine's notorious, quote, paycheck movies, along with The Swarm, Ashanti, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, The Island, The Hand, Blame It on Rio, and On Deadly Ground. When Caine was asked about this movie in an interview, he answered, I've never seen it, but by all accounts, it's terrible. However, I've seen the house that it built, and it's terrific. (laughs) Can you imagine being an actor and not watching a movie that you were in? Talk about another thing. Well, that's I was about to say. I was about to do my, well, talk about another thing that's completely gone. But with the way these streaming movies function, some of these people, there's no, like Nicolas Cage, there's no way that he can watch everything that he's been in. (laughs) I'm sure he gets a screener. He gets a DVD or like something. But I'm just talking about like the, I guess you just have to have an amount of confidence that I don't and just a, a level of, I don't give a fuck. Right. Because I, I am paranoid about every single thing we put out there. Like I have to listen to the show. Like even after I've edited it, like uh-huh. I have to listen to it just to make sure that, you know, that it's okay. I can't fathom like Michael King. Yeah. He may think he might assume that it's a bad movie, but still doesn't he want to make sure that he, you know, what's out there. So he doesn't get uh blindsided. <laughs> I don't know, one of his grandchildren shows him Jaws Revenge at some point. It was like, Papa, you you dance funny. (laughs) There is an old school swagger to actors like Michael Caine of just kind of not giving a fuck and separate. Gary Oldman got in a bunch of shit. We've referenced that Playboy interview where he basically said, yes, some Mm -hmm. movies you do for X and some you do for others. Robert Downey Jr. I mean, there's been things he's said in interviews that people have kind of conveniently ignored <laughs> you think i'm sitting through oppenheimer Fuck that. <laughs> oh, shut up where he just talks you know some of his takes on the state of things have been kind of conveniently ignored by the masses but i i don't know there's no way robert downey jr's watched iron man 3 more than once you know <laughs> <laughs> i would hope not there definitely is a bigger to do obviously premieres have always been a thing but uh, it seemed like there was that period where it was a much bigger to do that you had to go to the premiere and watch the movie that you were in. But Michael Caine also is in a rarefied air of when he says, I don't give a fuck. You truly believe it. And it's just like, yeah, I did this movie. I don't give a shit. I got paid for it. And that's admirable. But I am in the exact same boat as you. I'm self-conscious about what I put out there. So I couldn't imagine being an actor at a level that high. I guess you might get kind of numb to it, though. Like, you get something you're really excited to work on, but, you know, there was probably a few years for, like, Leo DiCaprio after Titanic where it's like, eh. I I guess you can have enough money that it insulates you from just worrying about it. See, the real, like, uh, the pressure and, um, you know, almost the gambling tick is when you're the producer. You have to go watch it, and you're like, God, this better be fucking good. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that, that's probably part of it, too. Uh, Like with an actor, once you're not worried about whether this movie is going to make or break your career, you're like, all right, well, there's (laughs) the investment, the emotional investment is minimal. Yeah. So at this point, Michael Caine was Michael Caine. And he's like, yeah, fuck it. I don't care. It's a shark movie. He he was probably surprised. Maybe he doesn't even know at this point that it's part of the Jaws franchise. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck is Jaws? (laughs) Uh, all right, and now 
what everybody's been waiting for. Does Ben Murray like Jaws the Revenge? There we go. Let's find out in real time. Hello, contrarians. How did you enjoy that? Were you titillated and delighted all the way through? You must have been. Mario Van Peebles as Jake. What a performance. A shark that roars. Michael Caine saying, sweet Jesus, is heading straight for us, Ellen. There's so much to love about this film. Yes, I say that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. But that old N-word nostalgia plays heavy for me. I loved this as a kid growing up. It terrified me in equal measure. Obviously, it's nowhere near as good as Jaws. Obviously, 2, 3, and 4 are all pale by comparison. But I enjoy all of them on their own merits. And I'll tell you what, this is not the worst in the franchise. You're probably not going to watch Jaws 2 and Jaws 3. But this is better than Jaws 3. The shark effects, let's be real for a minute. The practical, Alex, shark effects are incredible. The whole thing is a joy. Michael Caine, you know, he has a good sense of humor about it. He knows that it built a fantastic house for him. And that's all he knows. He doesn't know anything else about the film because he refuses to watch it. But you watched it for me and I'm delighted. You can share in a little of my childhood joy. It's not a good film, but I like it anyway. And word of warning, don't look into the backstory of child actress Judith Barcy, because it kind of puts a dampener on proceedings. Oh, God. (laughs) That was ominous. Yeah. uh, Ominous tone to end on, and I guess a segue into what we'll go ahead and cover here in a minute. I, I do need to say that I'm glad that Ben brought it up himself, because when he was talking about, you know, how much he reveres this movie from his childhood. And it's, uh, I was like, Oh God, I'm going to ruin this movie for him, but he kind of already knows what's up. <laughs> so, um, well, wait, let's not, because now I'm, I'm just, I am concerned that <laughs> we're about to take a, <laughs> a, a left turn on what so far has been a very fun episode. <laughs> so let me, let me, uh, just process Ben's opinion. He likes it, Alex. He he thinks it's a bad movie, but he likes it. Dude, Jason Takes Manhattan. I, I got like vibes <laughs> from that in the beginning, and that's I think the movie that we've done on here that I'm the same way about of like, yeah, this movie fucking sucks, but I love it. And so I can get that and I respect that. And this movie, practical effects with a big old capital P, Ben knows what's up. I appreciate that. And uh it's a good looking movie, man. We are used to, and this isn't a critique of superhero movies or any modern movies. It's just basically the way that the winds have shifted. Muted colors are like a thing in movies now. Mm-hmm. And that's part of like when you take an edible and go see Avatar The Way of Water, you're like, oh my God, it's so vibrant. This is amazing because that's just what's worked. And now when people make movies intentionally like really colorful or with um, expansive shots and overviews and, you know, really bright settings, and like, you know, using be it natural light or whatever. It's just people freak out and they're like, oh, what a, what a artistic choice. And look at this. And, you know, uh, the work that would go into that and the effort just to get these shots, because most people just film stuff in a soundstage and just use artificial lighting. And it's just become the norm. And that is what it is. 
So you watch something like this at a movie that fucking sucks, but looks incredible just based by like, you know, if you just watched movies of the past 20 years, you would think this movie is almost like an outlier of like, man, look at that. That that's impressive. That shot there. Oh, they're actually in, in, in a body of water there. And uh, even like the costuming and shit, which a movie like this, you even come to think of the time period is like, is there costuming? Did the people just show up and they're like, yeah, just wear what you got. Like, you know, um, Michael Caine had a, like a Tommy Hill figure patch on one of his shirts. They just ripped it off. They're like, okay, you can just wear that. And so <laughs> that was my main thing. Uh, aside from processing how it's literally one of the stupidest plots of a movie I've ever seen in my life was just how good it looked and how um, just easily it flowed. It's just a different, it's a different game. It's a much different game these days. And I guess that my um, being a curmudgeon or, you know, it's not bitter because I get it. It's just I watch something like this. I'm like, it used to just be really simple. It's a bad example because this movie's not good. But right. <laughs> but the, it's Invasion USA also. That movie sucks, but it's um, fuck. <laughs> that movie's terrible. Yeah, but it was a movie. They blew up real houses and they, you know, they did all that shit practically and they used real light to, you know, make movie magic. And we're just we're so much farther away from that now and it's, it's since we started this podcast fucking 10 years ago that it's going to be a continuing source of discussion. So it's a movie I watched and immediately connected with the idea of if I watch this as a kid, it, one, it would probably scare me, but it would be something that I have like affinity for. And that you don't meet people that are our age, Julio, that watch Friday the 13th Part 5 and fall in love with it. It's something you see in your youth that you kind of cling to. And this is a movie that's definitely like that. It's just because, you know, those movies from the 80s and shit that I really enjoy, I've seen my whole life, so I'm used to processing it. This one was kind of a trip because of how good it looks that I, it was a weird dichotomy. I was like, this movie's terrible, but it looks so much better than most stuff that's made today. Where, where's the, uh, the even keel here? Where do we find the, the comfortable middle ground? I don't know. James Cameron. I mean, they're not using a real shark, Alex, so. Oh, it's a really practical. Dude, how fucking metal would that be if, like, <laughs> some filmmaker, I don't know, who who would be, like, the, the great white buffalo that would come back to make a Kashishi. What's his name? Abdulatif Kashishi. <laughs> yes. It's like, all right, blue is the warmest color, too, but it's got a live shark in it. Let's go, baby. Look, my name goes on the report, okay? It's a half-assed job. I don't get my doctorate, and neither do you. My two, My two main thoughts about this. As I was watching it, one is that, well, I guess it related, the amount of shark movies out there floating. <laughs> it the is world. insane. Right? How many of those are just as, well, you know, quotation marks, bad or even worse than Jaws Revenge? But Jaws Revenge, as I said when we started this segment, has the, the curse, you know, has that that baggage of being part of the Jaws franchise. So it becomes the whipping boy for shark movies. I'm like, I've seen shit on Tubi that looks worse than this movie, that makes less sense than this movie. But, you know, it's not like anybody's 
putting it on his list of worst movies ever or or bring it up in conversation you know and it's like the other side of the notoriety i mean i think that being part of of the of the jaws franchise allows this movie to use the jaws theme and allows this movie to use some of the characters you know they can put th- th- their last names can be brody and then they can maybe that i don't think that enhances the story but it definitely i guess gives audiences something to latch on if you care about the franchise like oh yeah you know those characters are from the first jaws and and then you have the theme which is definitely an asset but the trade-off is that now you're going to be judged so harshly wouldn't you be better off releasing this movie as if it wasn't part of the jaws franchise and you just put it out there and then people would just watch it and be like oh yeah it's that shark movie it's okay michael kane is in it would have made as much money, probably not. So in the end, I guess they made the, the right call. But but as far as the legacy goes, <laughs> there's a good chance that this movie would have wouldn't be reviled the way it is if it was not connected to the one of the movies that made Spielberg. So it was just weird watching it, knowing what people say about this movie, what what the discourse online is. And I'm watching, and I was like, it's just a shark movie. Like we have them, they're everywhere. There are people that only watch shark movies during Shark Week. It's it's just there's nothing remarkable about it, either good or bad. It's just a shark movie, and I, that's not to sound dismissive of. Well, you know. would you call Jaws the the first Jaws just a shark movie? No, I would call it a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what's that one that everybody loves? Um, Deep Deep Rising? No, that's not right. Blue something. The one with Treat Williams. Oh, uh, Samuel Jackson. Deep Blue Sea. Deep Blue Sea. There you go. I've never seen it. But, you know, that to me. It's not good. Me, it's like, this is sh- but, but it's a shark movie. You know, it's like, I think that the sharks in that one, they're intelligent. But in the end, it's, it's a shark movie. That's fine. You know, if you like shark movies, I can take them or leave them. But I understand that there's a market for for shark movies, maybe in a, on a broader spectrum just creature movies like animals attacking you that that's a type of movie um, do you know what the tagline for deep blue sea was sam jackson but not really i always forget that's a rennie harlan film uh bigger smarter faster meaner sure why not <laughs> ll cool j <laughs> is deep blue sea <laughs> um, stellan skarsgård's in that movie yeah that. <laughs> Man, I I listen to what you're saying, and it is I just the thing that keeps repeating in my head the same line over and over again is like Steven Spielberg made Jaws, and there's to this day people that make shark movies just because sharks are a part of pop culture. <laughs> Steven Spielberg invented sharks. No, it's like <laughs> they have such a profound impact. I had shark toys when I was a kid. You play with sharks and stuff. It's just because of Jaws. And you're right. You think of all that has come in the wake, in the blowback of Jaws from 1975. And Jaws the Revenge doesn't seem that bad when you compare it to all of them. But I'm listening to what you're saying, and it's all making sense to me. It's just because it has the Jaws name on it, and it's the worst of the sequels, allegedly. Uh, We'll circle back on this after I watch three. Mm-hmm. It just gets beat up for no reason. I've never seen Sharknado. I don't plan to. I imagine it sucks worse than Jaws the Revenge. I know I cut you off in your train of thought, but what you're saying is very uh, profound on the subject. 
Well, I mean, you know, I had time to think about other stuff while I was watching this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I don't. It's so fucking stupid. But even that part doesn't bother me. The same it's shark just, goes from New England to the Bahamas to hunt. I don't think it's. This, no, yeah, you're right. It is the same shark. Yes. In in the movie. But it, it's now that we're in real talk. I mean, it's not the same shark from the previous movies. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, they blew it up. It just feels like they want you to believe it's the same shark. Like, it really feels like. I think they like, want you to believe that it's uh, yeah, disconnected. Yeah. Oh, they should have done Son of Jaws. Where this is the <laughs> and grandson of John. <laughs> but why is it called the revenge if it's not the same shark? I wonder if this was at some point in a draft of the of the screenplay. But the idea that kind of like the joke, the Halloween joke that, that they made in Concerns Corner, that Ellen Brody is delusional and feels targeted by a shark just because of her past, because of what happened to her husband, what her husband did, and. If you build the movie around the idea that this woman, maybe even this family, because of what has happened in previous movies, now are just paranoid. I mean, I'm not saying that that would be a good movie, but they would make more sense than, oh, there's a shark that has a grudge against the Brodies. That's so ridiculous, though. Like, that almost makes me, it's so stupid that it almost makes me appreciate just the, like, the fucking gumption of it all. Of, like, the idea of, like, it's the same shark. And it's here to get its revenge on Homer Simpson. It's just so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> but if you're gonna do that, then then double down on it. I want yeah. the movie to make it a hundred percent clear that he's only going after the Brodies. Like you see the shark, and it just makes a beeline for Michael and avoids at the beach that big climatic scene at the beach. I, I would like to see the shark just swimming throughout people, completely ignoring everybody that who doesn't have. The Brody last name, <laughs> just zeroed in on on Thea, Michael, Ellen. You know, if it can roar, also, then why not just make it be able to jump out of the water and like you know just stand vertically and fist fight with Michael? <laughs> Alex, you're pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> that that's a bridge too far. Yes, that that is Sharknado territory. Michael, we got a rare bird here. You know that. Huh? Great White don't come down to the Bahamas. Never. Never. Lorraine Gary is the lead in this and teeters on the line of playing it straight, but also understanding the absurdity of it. I think she's fine. The Lance Guest fella feels to me like he's playing it a bit too serious. He didn't know, but he thought he was in the first Jaws, whereas... uh... Lorraine, she was like, no, I wasn't the first Jaws. This is not the first Jaws. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it teeters on a bit too serious, but uh, that part where like they're on the ferry and she's laughing and then starts crying, I'm like, all right, what what's the tone we're going for here? <laughs> but uh, honestly, for the movie that it is, she does a decent job of carrying it as the lead. I mean, the, the acting in this ranges from hey to oof. And uh, I, th- I think she's pretty decent as the lead. Do you think it? I'm correct in saying that she has chemistry with Michael Caine, or is it just that Michael Caine is so charismatic that, <laughs> that he's fooling us into thinking that there's chemistry there? They do have really good chemistry, and it made me mad that there's not a better movie that potentially explores that. The dancing scene's fucking stupid, but just like um, 
the when they're like at the bar or whatever and he says he wants to kiss her and she doesn't know why and she like you know seems very genuine and like her blushing mm-hmm. and whatnot that's really good stuff it's you know michael kane is michael kane so you can't just get that with anybody but uh there's a few flashes of of brilliance there i think there's a romantic comedy somewhere that's just about this uh this drug dealer <laughs> wooing this widow that just lost her son to a shark <laughs> shot in the bahamas of course that's that's a you know like what they say oh the city is another character in this movie like, i think the bahamas is a character in this movie please never refer to a city as a character in a movie again that <laughs> reminds me too much of uh, la la land uh we'd mentioned michael kane michael kane in jaws the revenge is possibly the new top it's possibly the new measuring stick for the i'm so good i can just pull off anything effortlessly performance michael <laughs> kane in this wouldn't be surprised if he told me he didn't really memorize any of his lines he just figured out what to say based on like context clues of all the other characters and everything <laughs> dude he has the best line in the movie uh when uh, michael asks if he can dance if he can cut in they're at the club and he's dan- Michael Caine's dancing with Ellen. And then Michael the world would be much jealous. better if more sons danced with their mothers. Yep. Yeah. Has nothing to do with sharks. But I was like, oh, I was not expecting that bit of wisdom from Michael Caine. That chicken soup for the soul that Michael Caine just dropped yep. on us here. But it, it, it really is like think about any of the top autopilot performances you've ever seen. Michael Caine puts them to shame in the revenge. <laughs> in jaws la revancha uh (laughs) all right so now we come to uh an unfortunate and tragic part of this story because honestly um it's never going to come up again on here hey y'all uh kind of breaking our usual feng shui and our usual uh, routine here uh, this is us coming to you from after recording this episode. Uh, after starting to edit this episode. <laughs> yes. And, you know, in real time also, it was uh, going through my mind of how is this going to turn out. But uh, it's uh, Ben made allusion to it there in his um, clip about why he chose this. Uh, Judith Barcy was a child actor uh, that has a, a really um, tragic story, very frustrating and sad story she was uh murdered by her dad and when she was very very young and we kind of got into that in the episode um we read some contemporary articles uh, newspaper articles from the time and you know had a discussion about it and you know the idea of does something like that affect your ability to enjoy something um uh, you know, be it a movie, book, whatever, when you know more about this person's life and their story. And it, basically what it came down to is that it kind of interrupted the flow of the episode and kind of hindered some of the direction and kind of just left Julio and I a bit, you know, unsure of what to say at certain points. So the the whole story's out there. You know, Wikipedia is there, but, you know, it doesn't take much more of a Google search than to find the, the whole story about what happened with Judith Barcy. Uh, we'll clip out what we did and put it on our patron. But, you know, the last thing we want to do is make it seem as though we're 
hey, look at this or uh, listen to this salacious and, you know, kind of crazy story. We're, you know, we're taking the dark shit over to our patron page and putting it behind a paywall. Yeah, uh, it's not like we're uh, we're not blowing the lid on this, but it just <laughs> it just felt very uh, not unlike everything else that's going on in this episode, which is about a silly movie about a silly shark. And it was there was a little bit of tonal whiplash whenever we're putting it together. So it's better for everybody involved if we just take it out, but also uh, just explain why, because otherwise it'll look weird if uh, it doesn't get brought up. Absolutely. It's something that if you spend, you know, two or three minutes looking at the legacy of this movie, it's something you're bound to come across. But it did really it just didn't match up tonally. So. You know, we go all in on these when we do these episodes for y'all, so we don't like to leave any stones unturned, but it just it didn't work for this. And um, we hope you enjoy what uh, we did end up with and uh, what you are going to get back to right now. Getting back here to the ridiculousness of this movie. The shark's infamous roar during the climax actually comes from a Tom and Jerry cartoon called The Milky Waif. Reportedly, this was actually done because the sound editor refused to make an original sound effect, thinking that the idea of a shark roaring was ridiculous. <laughs> he was not wrong, but at the same no, time, he... <laughs> it's almost like he was not aware of the movie that he was working on. Yeah. Do you think uh, there's another version of this that's more fun when everyone leans into it? Yes. That's my version where the where the shark is very committed to only killing Brodies. And stands up on its hind legs and fist fights them. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't stand up, but it does kind of like <laughs> comes out of the water and then Slaps it just them. shimmies. <laughs> <laughs> just shimmies in the sand. It just keeps going like like, like it, a snake. D- no, or that move that um, I'm actually doing it right now in, in my recording chair. The seals do. They like kind of just like <laughs> plop themselves forward. <laughs> the shark comes up and like uh Steve Carell at the end of Foxcatcher looks at Ellen Brody and says, Do you have a problem with me? <laughs> Roy Scheider was offered a cameo but declined, stating Satan himself could not get me to do Jaws part four. Reportedly, if Scheider had accepted the bit part, the shark would have killed his character at the start of the movie. The end result has Scheider in the movie through archive footage from the original Jaws that was inserted during some scenes. So they were trying to do Scream 10 years before its time. <laughs> but that would be, that would annoy me. See, that would have annoyed me if you bring Rogue Scheider and just so they can kill the character from the first movie. That that feels a little bit like a slap in the face. I mean, this movie, <laughs> depending on your prerogative, could also feel like a slap in the face. I don't think so, just because, yes, uh, Ellen Brody is uh, what they call now a legacy character, and she's and the actress does a good job or whatever, but let's be honest, nobody cares about any character other than Chief Brody from the original. That's, the, that's why you would feel like a slap in the face. This is just, sure, whatever. <laughs> it's connected to the main story, but or to the original story, but not... Uh, and it's not that they would just kill him off in the movie. It's just they would kill him off in the at the beginning, right? It's just completely unnecessary. Yeah, it would seem just like a waste of resources. Deputy Brody will take care of it personally. 
Michael Caine accepted his role after seeing only the first line in the script, which was fade in Hawaii. Caine had wanted to shoot a movie in Hawaii for a while. This is unbeknownst to some people, critics who mock Caine for agreeing to the film, stating, I wonder what the conversation could have been between him and the filmmakers. See, that is like big dick energy right there. Fuck it. I'm getting paid and I want to go to Hawaii. I don't give a fuck. He instructed his agent, find me a movie that's shooting in Hawaii. And another hilarious trivia fact on IMDb. Michael Caine is the second actor to follow up an Academy Award winning performance with a Razzie Award nominated performance in a Jaws sequel. The first was Lou Gossett Jr. who won an Oscar for An Officer and a Gentleman and then was nominated for a Razzie for Jaws 3D. (laughs) That stat is just, that's undefeated right there, I tell you what. Who keeps track of that? (laughs) Who's who's the person that's just like comparing, has the databases, all the the data tables of you know, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like fucking nerd, but I can tell you everyone the Undertakers wrestled at WrestleMania. So, I, I... <laughs> all right, since we're back on the lighter side here and wrapping up, we look to the Golden Raspberries from 1988 when Jaws: The Revenge was nominated for Worst Actor, Worst Actress, Worst Supporting Actor, Worst Screenplay, Worst Picture, Worst Director, and Worst Visual Effects. It only won worst visual effects, which again, I kind of say, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Out of everything, that's the one that you give. Worst picture, it lost to Leonard Part Six, the Bill Cosby movie, which we've talked about that one before. Yeah, somehow this movie where a little girl was murdered has aged less poorly than anything involving Bill Cosby. <laughs> Ishtar? What is Ishtar? Dustin Hoffman. I haven't seen it, but I know it's maligned. Jaws the Revenge. Tough Guys, Don't Dance, and Who's That Girl starring Madonna. Worst actor was Bruce the Shark. They nominated the fucking shark. (laughs) Bill Cosby took it home. (laughs) Worst actress, Lorraine Gary. Madonna took it home for Who's That Girl. Also nominated was Sharon Stone and Alan Quatermain in The Lost City of Gold, Deborah Sandlin for Tough Guys Don't Dance, and Sandra Locke for Rat Boy. Where supporting actor Michael Caine was nominated but lost out to David Mendehall for Over the Top. Do you know what Over the Top is, Julio? Is that the arm wrestling movie? (laughs) Yeah. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it. With Sly. Worst director went to Norman Mailer for Tough Guys Don't Dance and Elaine May for Ishtar tied. And then lastly, worst screenplay went to Leonard Part 6 by Jonathan Reynolds with a story by Bill Cosby. Cosby sweeping at the Razzies. Well, all the Razzie nominations in the world don't mean dick when you compare it to the Contrarians rating. So Julio, I am giving this a D. It is not good, but I had a good time with it, if that makes sense. It's just, it's stupid, and it's easy, and the world needs movies like this. And also, from my vantage point, I could immediately see like when it was made, and I could feel, I could feel what Ben was saying in that clip that he sent us. I can totally understand how this is somebody's Jason Takes Manhattan for me. Or, you know, just somebody's 
fun dumb movie that they watched on tv or had on vhs a lot when they were a kid and it bushwhacked that daniel stern movie i really like like i can understand how it's someone's bushwhacked but objectively watching it today it's not it's it has such a stupid plot that i i can't act like it's good but as i mentioned i'm getting it on blu-ray the sequel uh (laughs) set and so i will likely watch it again at some point over the next few years and you know a good time was had where where are you landing on this julio i think only a good time for me would be would be going a little too far I, i i didn't have a bad time I had absolutely no desire to watch it ever again. <laughs> uh, that's I don't have the nostalgia for it, and I don't have the nostalgia for the genre, the attachment to the genre. And when I think back on Jaws Revenge, now I'm going to think it's not the the massive failure that everybody says it is. It's just not good. It's it's just a a bad shark movie, and there's plenty of those. So I don't understand why people. I do understand it because it's part of the, the franchise, right? And then I'm going to think of the missed opportunities and just the fact that this could have been uh, an interesting movie about grief or an interesting movie about paranoia or just a fun movie about a shark that is obsessed with just a last name. <laughs> None of this is, you know, there's just like the little flashes where you're like oh this is where we could have gone there but then they don't go there uh, yeah it looks good and it's and it's short but i can't give it more than one and a half stars you know it's like oh you went higher than me i gave it one star on letterbox oh wow <laughs> yeah no i was for a moment that was like two stars maybe but but no not really this ain't Think- falling for christmas baby it it a hundred percent isn't. It's it's just not. You know, there's no. Um, I'm not gonna reward Michael Caine's enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy for him. He got paid and he went to Hawaii or whatever they shot. So that's different. Now this is it's not good. It's 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 a bad, it's a bad sequel. And if you're going to do something with the characters from the first movie, first and second movie, then you should do better than this. So it's it's their own fault, really, for making it a Jaws sequel instead of a generic shark movie. Although I'll probably give it the same score anyway. <laughs> Get in, Alan Brody. You miss your flight. We've covered Jaws the Revenge, I think, as deep as anyone in recent podcasting history could. So, Julio, what is on deck next? What are we putting the tracker on? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got to call Mario Van Peebles for the technology to track the commitments. A movie I am not familiar with, but it was picked by patron Stephen Holbert. 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, 1991, right under two hours. What is this, Alex? Have you heard of the commitments? No. I'm, I'm looking to you for guidance, my friend. <laughs> All I know is what the patron said. I, Steven sent that, that title, and I said, sure, if it's streaming, we'll find it. Even if it's not streaming, we've we've worked wonders here in the Contrarians universe sometimes. That's the point. <laughs> the patrons say jump, and we say, yes, sir, how high, or ma'am. Yes, very respectful. All right. Well, Julio, we went a lot of places, but I think uh, it's time to close this out. Let's do it. 
Get us out of here, Alex. All right. So we'll start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand. Take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothwieser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our merch page, our Patreon page. That little tomato looking at himself in the mirror, that's Hans's handiwork. So if you like his work, let him know. Reach out to him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Or you can email him, Mildemonios at hotmail.com. Or you can just check his website, Mildemonios.pe, so you can see what else he has cooking. He's a writer, he has a bunch of novels. Recently saw that uh, his Historia del Peru, which was out of print, has gotten a second print. And finally, I guess the, the paper shortage is over in Peru. <laughs> Uh, I'm not kidding. That there really was a paper shortage. Oh shit! He also has two podcasts: Nación Combi, which is about Peruvian current affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. Hans, thank you for all your support. LateNightGrin.com has you covered for any and all news coverage or podcasting needs in the realm of professional wrestling. Joe, Rob, Oracle, all the boys over there. Last night recorded with them. We did our monthly episode of the Grin Grappler, in which we talked about the uh, career of. One Bobby Lashley, the Almighty, who's now 48 and in better physical shape than he's ever been in his career, and it's quite terrifying. <laughs> they continue to help support us and spread the word of our podcast, so we do the same for them. And also, in the realm of continuing support and assistance and spreading the word of the Contrarians, is our social media team of Corey Ari and Zoe Perez. Corey continues to absolutely fucking kill it with our quick video reviews and uh, our warm-ups, as we call them, whether it's at facebook.com slash contrarian prime, Instagram at contrarian prime, youtube.com slash at contrarian prime, the social media graphics, videos, posts, the presence that uh, both Corey and Zoe have helped out with us uh, are greatly appreciated. What is also greatly appreciated is you, the listening public, for tuning in to yet another episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. 1999.